All right, well, it's great to be here this morning. It's good to see so many people here. Um, and uh, Carol mentioned that um, I write, and if you ever want to see anything I write, just go to CourtneyTball.com, and that's where you'll find it. I, um, I'm going to start this morning by offering a scripture lesson from the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, and... The translation I'm reading is called The Message. You've probably seen that before. Listen as we hear the word of the Lord. Three days later, there was a wedding in the village of Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there. Jesus and his disciples were guests also. When they started running low on wine at the wedding banquet, Jesus' mother told him, They're just about out of wine. Jesus said, is this any of our business, mother, yours or mine? This isn't my time. Don't push me. That's part of why I like this translation. (laughs) She went ahead anyway, telling the servants, whatever he tells you, do it. Six stoneware water pots were there used by the Jews for ritual washings. Each held 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus ordered the servants, fill the pots with water And they filled them to the brim. Now, fill your pitchers and take them to the host, Jesus said. And they did. When the host tasted the water that had become wine, he didn't know what had just happened, but the servants, of course, knew. He called out to the bridegroom, Everybody I know begins with their finest wines, and after the guests have had their fill, brings out the cheap stuff. But you've saved the best till now. This act in Cana of Galilee was the first sign Jesus gave, the first glimpse of his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum, along with his mother, brothers, and disciples, and stayed several days. So, Pastor Carol told me the news not long ago that you and Trinity UMC recently voted to become what they call a cooperative parish ministry. Well, I guess this is the beginning of the end then, isn't it, my friends? I'm going to make you sweat a little bit, Carol. As we read in the book of Ecclesiastes, to everything there is a season, a time to be born, and a time to die. I suppose we shouldn't be surprised. We see this happening all over the country, and not just in the United Methodist Church. Congregations that used to have thousands of members can now barely pay their bills. In the United Methodist context, it usually goes something like this. A once thriving church has declined to the point where it can no longer support a full-time pastor. They cut costs wherever they can. They argue with the conference about apportionments and health insurance but eventually that full-time pastor has got to go. So they downgrade to a part-time pastor. Maybe they get a retired clergy person or a licensed local minister who's willing to work more hours for less money. The problem with these options is usually you get what you pay for because it's not the most attractive appointment. The conference doesn't send its most talented clergy there. Maybe you luck out and get someone who has some definite skills, but everyone knows that person's not going to stick around for long. All of this creates anxiety, which breeds conflict. 
Now, conflict in and of itself is natural. It happens all the time. There's nothing wrong with conflict, but sometimes conflict turns ugly. People blame other people. It's the pastor's fault. The first one was incompetent. The second one was a woman. I've heard that before. <laughs> I knew that we should never should have hired a female pastor, someone says. Or maybe the blame lies elsewhere. It's the old leaders of the church. They never let anything change. Maybe if we can hang on long enough for a few more of them to die, then we can really do things the way they should be done. Or perhaps it's the young people who never come to church anymore. They'd rather sleep in or go shopping or watch their kids play soccer on Sunday, which really means that they're just content to watch the church die instead of live the right kind of life in a community of believers. Nobody knows what the heck to do or who might actually be able to lead them out of this mess. They've heard promises of miracles, church consultants or famous pastors or conference staff, well-meaning people who just want to help who really don't like seeing churches close. They tell them, if you follow this plan, you'll survive. We've seen this process work wonders in other settings, which subconsciously, you know, means if it doesn't work here, then it's your fault. Everybody's worried, and that anxiety sometimes gets turned into hard feelings. People say hurtful things, or they simply walk away leaving a little more of the burden on the shoulders of fewer and fewer people. In many churches, this can create a toxic atmosphere. You try to cover it up when a visitor walks through the door. Everybody be on their best behavior, so maybe, just maybe, this person will stay around. But ha what happens when they do stay? When the regulars let down their guard and the perfume of niceness you've sprayed all over the church doesn't quite do enough to cover up the bad smell of bitter conflict. Or maybe it's got very little to do with you. Maybe you didn't do anything wrong, and it's just the changing demographics of the location you're in. Either way, the attendance and the offering numbers keep declining while the expenses continue to climb, and eventually you come to the inevitable conclusion, we can't survive on our own anymore. So then we start the season of mergers, which is where you are now. Maybe this sequence of events that I said wasn't what happened here. Maybe it's not what is happening here. But you are now in this time of merging. First you'll share a pastor, and that will have some bumps, but it will be a relief for a while not to have to worry so much about covering everything on your own. Then maybe one congregation will get jealous of the other. They think the pastor likes those other people more, and maybe the pastor actually does. <laughs> so she puts more time, more energy into whichever church she thinks has the potential for growth, for a healthy ministry. And we haven't even started talking about buildings. Eventually, we arrive at the moment when everyone with any sense realizes that it's silly to keep two small groups operating out of two oversized buildings. But who has to close? That's a heartbreaking decision, because if you close a building, aren't you essentially closing a church? And if one church closes, how long can the other really survive? Are we not just forestalling death a little bit longer? 
Let's face it, some might say, our glory days are in the past, our church is old and soon will be dead, and we're, all we're truly, really trying to do is die with some dignity. All right, now that's been said. I don't know what happened in your discussions leading up to this decision to become a cooperative parish. I know how it's gone in some other places. But if this kind of talk wasn't occurring out in the open, it was definitely happening somewhere. Sometimes it's helpful to just get these thoughts and feelings in front of us so then we can deal with them, right? Sometimes we need to have things in front of us. But let me say this. I really want you to hear this. If you don't take anything else away from this sermon, then please, please listen to what I'm about to say. I want you to know that whatever happens, it's okay. You are allowed to think and feel whatever it is you think and feel. If you want to throw in the towel and walk away, that's okay. If you get frustrated or disappointed or angry, that's okay. If this really is the beginning of the end and you get 10 more years in before the church closes its doors, that's okay too. It's okay to die with dignity. Nothing lasts forever. And Jesus taught us a seed only becomes a plant after it gives up its life as a seed. Resurrection only comes after death. As Christians, it's never been our job to preserve life as we know it. Remember what Jesus said? A person who tries to save his life will surely lose it. Survival has never, ever, ever been the end goal of church. So if your church dies, please know that this too is okay. It really is. Nothing lasts forever. The world changes, and we usually have little to no control over that change. Many, many, many good Christians have watched their church close. But then again, maybe that's not what's happening here. Maybe instead of getting ready for a funeral, maybe you folks are preparing for a wedding. As a former pastor in a college town, I have officiated at quite a few weddings. And I can tell you there's almost as much anxiety at a wedding as there is at a funeral. And I guarantee you, in the process of preparing for every wedding I've ever been to, at some point, both the bride and the groom have asked themselves, what have I gotten myself into? Is this the end of life as I know it? And of course, in a way, it is, right? Once you've been married, life is different. You can no longer just think of yourself. Every decision you make has to take into account the needs and the desires of your partner, I remember how hard this was for me as a young husband. Anybody else have any trouble with this? I was, and I still am, a rather self-absorbed person, I will admit that. Most of my thoughts are focused on what I want, my hopes, my fears, my desires, my plans. There was a time when I, there are times when I just flat out don't want to consider what my wife's needs are. I still do want her to be considerate of mine, though. <laughs> but over time, I have gotten, I hope I've gotten better about this. Um, because I realized that having her in my life is just about the best thing that I could ever have hoped to have happened to me. And I want her to stick around. 
She makes me a better person, and I'm pretty sure, pretty sure she would say, say the same thing about me and my effect on her. We each have different personalities and talents and skills, and we both have certain traits that sometimes drive the other person crazy, but most of the time, these differences complement one another instead of making things worse. And I know this is going to sound like bragging, but I really believe that Emmy and I make a pretty good team. Plus, we love each other a lot, which doesn't hurt. I know plenty of relationships do not go well. That's true. They end in bitterness, embarrassing defeat. That's the risk we all choose to take when we partner with another person. But when it works, holy cow, it's a good thing, isn't it? Solid marriage is one of the best things that can ever happen in life. Maybe this is part of the reason that in the Gospel of John, Jesus' first miracle happens at a wedding. He turns water into wine so that even after the guests have drank everything they had, God was ready to make sure the party didn't stop and people could go on celebrating the sacred union for as long as they wanted. I don't know if you noticed this when you heard the story, but it actually was Jesus' mother who pushed him to perform his first miracle. Jesus, at the time, had more serious business on his mind. He was putting together a band of disciples in order to start a revolutionary movement which would challenge the highest worldly powers of his time. He knew from the beginning that this would probably end in his death. After all, in the very next passage we read from the Gospel of John, Jesus carries out a dangerous protest action where he cleanses the temple and for the first time publicly predicts his death and resurrection. So when his mother tells him the party is out of wine, his reaction to her is to say, basically, what do you want me to do about it, Mom? This isn't my concern. It's not exactly the way I plan to use my power. I need to stay focused on serious things. In other words, Jesus is already planning a course of action that will lead to his own funeral, and his mother is asking him to make more wine for a wedding. I love Mary's response, though. I can just picture her rolling her eyes at Jesus, right? <laughs> or maybe staring him down the way mothers sometimes do. Jesus, you're going to do this. Ignoring his protest and continuing on by telling the servants that her son Jesus will take care of the situation. To which Jesus sighs, gives up, and says, Okay, guys, fill these jugs with water. You see, Mary knew full well what Jesus was about to get himself into. She knew there would be very difficult, scary times ahead. And that was hard for her as a mother. But instead of looking forward and despairing, she reminded her son of a very important lesson. You're at a wedding! This is a time of celebration, so instead of sitting in your corner with your disciples and brooding about what comes next, get up and do your part to make sure everybody's having a good time, Jesus. You only have so many chances in this life for celebration, so don't miss out on these opportunities while they come. We are not ready for your funeral yet, my son. Friends, I want to be real with you today. I don't want to lead you toward halls. Sorry, I don't want to lead you toward false hopes with easy platitudes. I want to speak as much truth as I can 
and not pretend to know more than I do. But here's one thing every pastor or experienced Christian does know. We know that both funerals and weddings are part of the life of ministry. We also know that funerals aren't all bad and weddings aren't all good. Nobody in this room can tell you for sure what the future holds. You don't now and never will have control over it. But you do have some ability to choose how you look at things. So the question I think you all need to ask yourselves and then try to answer both as individuals and as a community, and Trinity needs to do the same thing. Maybe you've already done this, but I want you to think through it again. Is this a funeral or a wedding you're getting ready for? No one else can make the decision for you. They can pressure you one way or the other. They might tell you that this is a dying church and it would be better to start over than try to change, some, change this into something you're not. Or they may say it's crazy to give up on part of the body of Christ, on a community of people that took decades to build, that has a history and so much potential for a bright future. The truth is there are good reasons to go either way. But in the end, the choice is yours. And one way or another, you're going to have to look into your hearts as individuals and a community and make the call. Whichever way you go, you'll probably do some things you're proud of, and you'll also have moments you regret. But no matter what, you can be absolutely certain that God, that the God of love is able to work with you to redeem your choice, and to align your path with God's holy purpose. Because as Jesus tells us, with God, all things are possible. And that's a good thing to know, isn't it? It reduces our fear, helps us live with freedom, move forward with confidence when we know that whatever state we get ourselves into, God is completely willing to come alongside us and make things right. That's just one part of the good news. Do you believe it? If so, let me hear you say, Amen. Amen. Amen.